Amen. So, are you familiar with the theory of plate tectonics? You are. I, I was reading about this, I was studying about this because I wanted to talk about it a little bit. And I was surprised by the word theory. It's some, those words sometimes they just fly over us. Apparently, it's just a theory that these plates exist. But the theory holds that the surface of the earth consists of seven large plates of the earth crust with some other smaller plates interspersed within there. And they're all moving or kind of floating on this liquid center of the earth. The plates are between four miles and 120 miles thick, depending on where you're at in the plate. Anybody ever been in an earthquake? Anybody? Oh, so I see there's one, there's two. What was it like? Terror? What was it? Scary. scary. Lydia and I have been in a couple, but none of them were very scary. One of them was in Poland. We were at some friend's house. It was like a four-story building, and we heard what sounded like a loud truck drive by, although there was no road there. Later, we heard it was an earthquake. We didn't feel anything. We just heard this weird sound. The last one was in Montana about a year ago. We were lying in bed. If you've been over to our house, you've seen that we have some different metal work kind of decorations hanging in various places in the, in the house. Well, periodically, one of them will rattle, you know, if you walk or shut a door or something. We were lying in bed, and all of them started rattling. And I looked over at Lydia, and I said, what are the cats doing? Because they're shaking the whole house. And it continued, and I thought, okay, this is weird. So I got out of bed. We couldn't figure out what it was. I walked into the living room, and, and I don't have it anymore, but I used to have a 100-gallon aquarium with fish. And I walked out, and, and I looked at the aquarium, and the water in the aquarium was going like this from side to side. Fortunately, I had lapsed in keeping it full enough, so none of it was splashing out. If it had been full, filled correctly, it would have been probably sloshing over onto the floor on the sides. That was my experience. Have you ever heard of a worldview? Do you know what a worldview is? Anybody? What do you think? What's a worldview? The way you see what goes on in the world. It's a philosophical view of, of the world and why it exists. Um, I, I looked up some different things I want to read. One of them says it's an all-encompassing perspective on everything that exists and matters to us. A person's worldview represents the most fundamental beliefs about how the world works. It reflects how we would answer the big questions of human existence. The fundamental questions, who we are, what we are, where we came from, why we're here, where we're headed, what's the meaning and purpose of life, is there a, an afterlife, and what consists of a good life here and now. Worldviews are kind of like the tectonic plates of culture. You know, tectonic plates move, right? Some of them collide, and one will go under another, and it'll, you know, mountains and volcanoes, right? Sometimes they spread apart and create lower spaces. Sometimes they move along the sides of each other, and they rub. That's what they do in California. Uh, along the coast, they rub. Worldviews are kind of the same way, aren't they? We have... A lot of different worldviews in the United States. We have a lot of different worldviews around the world. And all of the things that we see in this world that create chaos among our culture, things that we argue about and debate about, are worldview issues like those tectonic plates bumping up against each other. 
rubbing against each other, causing earthquakes, causing uh, chaos. What I'm going to hope to accomplish over the next probably eight weeks, maybe a little longer, is I want us to unpack what it means to have a worldview, and I want to look at and help us develop a robust and even more sound biblical worldview that we can carry with us into the world so that when we're buffeted by the tectonic plates of other worldviews and culture, we will be able to stand. So we're going to be taking a look. We're going to start in Genesis 1. I'm going to read Genesis 1 and 2 today. I know it's a little bit. Two chapters. It's a little bit long. It's going to be on the screen. I encourage you to read along in your Bibles. You don't have a reading if you're doing that 5 by 5 by 5 You don't have one today and tomorrow. So I'm going to encourage you today and tomorrow, reread chapters 1 and 2 because we're going to be in them for a couple weeks. So let's take a look. Um, uh, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. I didn't look, but I'm guessing it probably starts on page 1. In the Pew Bible, so if you're using a Pew Bible and you pull one out, if it's not on page one, it's very close to that. So grab a Pew Bible, read along with me as we read Genesis 1 and 2, and it says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated light from the darkness, and he called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse with the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation. Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which was their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the water swarms according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, 
and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to the beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has been given the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain upon the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and he put the man in whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made, up, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of, even, out of Eden to the water of the garden, and there divided and became four rivers. The first is the Pishon. It is the one that, hold, that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper for him. And out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and bird of heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is 
at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you will add understanding to the words of Genesis 1 and 2. Lord, I know many of us have probably read these and talked about these and thought about these and taught and studied these over the years. But Lord, I pray that you will speak to us through them today to help us understand what it is we believe and how it impacts our worldview. Lord, I pray that most of all, we will begin to discover who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So I called this series, It All Starts at the Beginning, because we're starting at the beginning. Today's message and next week, well, today's message is, is specifically going to be about discovering who God is according to what we've read. So we're going to move pretty quickly because there's a lot I want to cover. We've, we've read a lot, but I want to move through this. And, and in, in the course of what we've read, ask the question, what do we learn about God? The first thing we learn about God is this. God simply is. That's one of the things that's a core of our of our worldview. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God simply is. He always is. He always was. He always will be. God's existence, in other words, is not dependent. That's an important word. He's an independent being. He's always existed. His existence is not dependent on something else. God simply is. Number two, God made everything that is non-God. Everything that is not God, God made. Does that, does that resonate with you? In Genesis 1-1, it says, In the beginning, God created. The independent being, God, the uncaused cause, caused everything to come into being at the power of his word. Everything that was created, everything that we can see, Everything that we can touch, that we can breathe, everything we can't see but we know is there. The theory of the tectonic plates, all those theories, all of the things we think we know and the things we don't understand, all of those things God made, God created. If God's existence is not dependent, in other words, is independent, everything else, including you and me, must be dependent. So we are dependent creations. God is independent. He created us. Therefore, we are dependent creations. My existence is dependent upon God. God has no cause. He just is. But because you and I were created, we are dependent upon God's creative power and upon God's keeping power. Everything that is not God is created and consequently secondary to God. Would you agree with that? God is first, God is primary, God created everything, therefore we are secondary. The third point here, there's only one of him. There's only one of him. There's only one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was part of the thing that every person who was a, a, a follower of Judaism would memorize. They would memorize that fragment of text. The Lord our God is one. 
Again and again throughout the Bible, we see it taught and said and written that God is one. But then in Genesis 1.26, God says something curious. I'm going to read it again. God says, let us make man in our own image. Who is the us? Who's the us here? Let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and the birds of the heavens, the livestock, over all of the earth and over all the things that creep on the earth. What does it mean? Is he referring to himself in some kind of royal we? Is he referring to himself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit? We understand this, this Trinitarian picture of God, and I think it's, it's fascinating when you go back to Genesis 1, and you want to see, although the Scripture doesn't ever use the word Trinity, it teaches about a God who is triune, a God who is three in one. I love it. It says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So you have a picture of the Father, and you have a picture of the Spirit at creation. And then when we go forward in Scripture to John 1, do you know what it says? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So we have this this picture of a God who is one, but yet He's three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's complicated, isn't it? It's one of those things that you can't fully explain. But Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. However we understand the plurality, the trinity of God, the fact remains that somehow he is still one God and only one God. The fourth thing I want to want to talk about here. I love this point. Genesis 1-3 talks about God being a talking God. Isn't that interesting that he's a, a talking God? He's not a silent God. He's not a, a stone idol or a statue or some kind of tree or something that never speaks that you never hear from. God is a talking God. Genesis 1-3 says, and God said, let there be light. It's apparent almost from the very beginning that this God we're talking about is a God who speaks. He's not silent. He says, let there be light, and it happens. He says, let there be darkness, and it happens. He said, let the light and the dark be separated. Let there be water. Let there be animals, birds, fish, humans. Whatever he speaks into existence by the power of his word comes to be. He's a talking God. Specifically, though, he speaks to Adam and Eve, doesn't he? It's one thing to talk about God as an abstract kind of understanding of a creative being who speaks to nothing and creates something out of it. It's another thing altogether to understand God as a, as a God who wants to have a personal relationship, isn't it? But it it's something totally different when we go to Genesis 1 28 through 30, where it says God blesses them and says to them, he's speaking directly to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply over all the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living creature that moves on the earth. And God said, I've given you the plants and I've given you the beasts and I've given you dominion. And it was so. God spoke with Adam and Eve. He had conversation with Adam and Eve. 
He first spoke creation into being, and then he spoke to his creation. That makes him really special and unique, doesn't it? And we can still speak to God today, and he still speaks to us. Number five, everything that makes God is good. I'm sorry, everything, <laughs> everything God makes, there, let me rephrase that. Everything God makes is good. Right? He, he said, I made light, and I said it was good. I made water. I made heavens, earth. I said it was good. I made the expanse of the heavens, and I, I, I set up the sun and the moon over the earth, and those were good, and animals, and sea creatures, and birds, and people, and they were good. What God makes is good. In the beginning, there was nothing wrong with his creation. It was perfect. It was good. And at the end of the sixth day when he rested, he looked at it, and he said it's it's superlative. Very good. It's excellent. It's unstained. It's unruined. It's unsoiled. No hate, no murder, no jealousy, no killing or death. In fact, you notice, you'll see at the end of, of chapter 2, he talks about what was given for food. In the order of the animals and the humans, what were all animals and all humans supposed to eat? Green things, plants, seeds, fruits, other proteins that we know now we can get protein from things that aren't animal. It was a perfect place. There was no death. There was no sorrow. There were no tears. There was no death. There was no murder. There was no killing. It was perfect. It was good. In fact, it was very good. When God came to the end of making everything good, he does another interesting thing. He rests. Do you think God rested because he was tired? <laughs> He's like, ah, oh, sore, all that creating. I need a nap. Do you think that's why God rested? Why do you think God rested? As an example for us. It was not as if to say he was tired, but instead to designate that in our lives we need rest too. He's being an example to us. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. That's, that's, that's a, a later topic, the topic of rest. The seventh point here is that the creation proclaims his greatness and his glory. The more we come to understand the intricacies of God's creation, the more our response towards God is adoration, respect, praise, and, and giving him what he is due. So now in pulling these seven points together, I kind of circle these seven points and help them begin to define and inform our worldview, I want to go to Deuteronomy. Uh, first, I want to read out of Psalms, but we're going to go to Deuteronomy in a second. So if you'll turn there, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 5. But I want to ask two questions as we try to understand how these things affect our life and our understanding of God. The first question is this. If God created everything, then everything is His why do we act like it's ours? A real, robust, biblical worldview accepts the fact that I don't have anything. Nothing is mine, although it's been given to me to have dominion over, to, to rule over, to steward. I love that word because that's like a caretaking role. 
Why do we act like the things of God are our things to decide about? There are things to, to break, are things to ruin. Psalm 24, 1 and 2 said, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the river, the rivers. God made everything. God created everything. The independent being, the uncreated creator that created everything has ownership of everything. Why? Because he made it, right? If you make something from the power of only your words, you get to keep it. That's a rule. That's like a cosmic rule. If you can speak something into, the, into being with the power of your words, it's yours. You get to keep it. Only God can do that. God created everything the way he wanted them to be, and he called them good. This is our second question. If they were good the way God created them, why should we say any different? Why should we say any different? How does this principle work it out in our daily lives? How does this work out? Uh, have you ever said this phrase, I really hate that guy? Yeah. Don't point at your spouse when <laughs> don't point at your spouse when I say that. <laughs> or your parents. Or your kids. I don't like so and so. Have you ever gossiped about somebody and said, I I uh, have some negative things to say about this person. I'm gonna trash you ever trash somebody? Like like torn down or I love that word, besmirched. Do we use that word anymore? Have you, ever, have you ever like soiled somebody's reputation with your words? Has anybody ever said anything negative about you? And some of you are like, never. <laughs> this morning, <laughs> at least not in the last five minutes, no. It goes back to that question. If they are good the way God created them, why do we think we have the authority, permission, uh, insert word here, uh, ability to be able to say something negative about them? See how this worldview of, of understanding God and everything that he put in creation, in the order of creation, it, it speaks not just to theology, but it speaks to practice for us. How do we live? How do we talk about other people? How do we treat other people? And if you think it doesn't happen in the church, you're wrong because it does. That's why Paul talked so much about gossip. Because he knew that the church was gossiping. He knew that they were saying negative things about each other. Why was Paul interested in that? Because God said a rule, don't gossip? Well, yeah, but what's that rule based on? We go back to the worldview. We go back to to the beginning, and we see if everything that's been created is good, we have no right to say otherwise about it. These worldview issues should permeate our lives and inform our words and inform our thoughts and inform our attitudes. If God created the world and everything in it, what right do we have to say, that guy's really a jerk? We don't have a right, do we? Have you ever said that person has no redeeming qualities whatsoever? Anybody ever said that? Some of you are like, yeah, I've said that. How does Scripture inform 
us in that. A right understanding of who God is starts with his creation. Armed with the knowledge of his creation that we read about in this book, as just a single example, and you begin to think this through, you see that the worldview uh, of understanding who God is, how he created, what he created us for, informs every area of our life. And I'm not going to stand up here and answer every area of your life for you. You have to think this through. You have to arm yourself with this worldview, and then you have to ask the Lord, how does it inform my life? And we're going to take a couple minutes to do some of that. We know later in the story of God, the Father sent laws down to the people through Moses, the Ten Commandments. He carried them down. He read them to the people, and he said, these are the laws that God has laid down. And we're going to take a look at some of them this week and some of them next week. We're going to work through uh, the first six of them this morning briefly and ask the question, how does our understanding of God revealed in Genesis 1 and 2 help us understand the law of God laid down in Genesis 5? So take a look at Genesis 5 with me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a couple of these. I'm just going to ask you guys to chime in here with the answer, and you'll begin to see how these work together. Genesis 5 verse 7, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. Based on what we read in Genesis 1 or 2, why? Because he's, what? He's the only God. What else? Hmm? What did I say? Genesis 5? Oh, Deuteronomy 5. Sorry, we're in Deuteronomy 5. But we're talking about Genesis 1 and 2. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Mitzi said one. What, was, what else? What are the reasons... Based on what we read in Genesis 1 and 2, would we say, have no other gods before me? Because he created everything. Because he made everything. Let's take a look at the next part, starting in 8. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the Father upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. Why would we not worship a carved image? Why? Because God made that stuff. That stuff's created. Should something that's created... Worship something else that's created. Why? Why? It makes no sense. If there's only one dependent creator, God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit in heaven, who created everything, why do we as created beings worship other created things? Because we're sinners. That's right, because we're confused, right? Because we're blinded, because we fall in love with those things or we become addicted to those things or, or doing what it says in Scripture is harder than just loving stuff and things. And so we worship created things instead of the Creator. You see, these laws... That, that were handed down in the Ten Commandments sound like maybe God just said, hey, I'm going to come up with ten things and make ten laws. But you see, they all focus back onto the worldview of the created order of God. They have purpose, they have meaning, and they inform our lives. Let's take a look at the next one. 
and 11. It says, You shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Why would you not do that? Spit it out. Why would you not take the name of the Lord God in vain? I hear whisperings. Why do you think? He's your reason for being. He's your creator. He made you. He formed you. Do you remember what Billy read? What did it say? He, he formed you. He knit you. Uh, when you were hidden before anybody saw you, God knew you. And he, I love that. Becca is knitting and Kara at home, they're knitting. They're in this knitting phase right now. And uh, I love that they use that terminology in Scripture that God knit us together in the womb. It really speaks volumes of the love and the care that it took for God to create us and form us and put us together. So why would we take God's name in vain when he spent so much time and effort creating us? It's like biting the hand that feeds you, right? It's that old, that old terminology there. Verse 12, observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey, or any other of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep a Sabbath. I mean, he kind of explains the why there, doesn't it? <laughs> but why would we do that? Based on this worldview understanding, why would we rest? Based on Genesis 1 and 2, it's an, it's an easy answer. Why would we do it? Because God did it and God said to. Sometimes that's the answer. Sometimes that's just the answer in Scripture. Why should we do it? God said to. I'm good with that. I'm going I'm to stick with that one. Honor your father and mother. It says, As the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Why would he put that in there? Why does that matter if we honor our father and mother? Because God said so. It's true. He did say so. But what other reasons? Going back to Genesis 1 and 2, thinking through that whole order of creation, why would it be important for God that we honor the people who gave us birth and raised us? Why would that be important to him? Okay. It is a representation of what he did for us. And he gave parents children in order to raise them and steward them and lead them to grow up in the way that, that God wants us to raise our children. That, that's our job as parents, to raise our children in the Lord. He created our parents. He made them who they were to be. He gave us life through them. The last one, 
And then we're going to pick up on the rest of these next week. You shall not murder. Why would God say that? We don't have a right to take a life he created. Because he made it. Remember, if you can speak something into being with the power of your voice, then it's yours. And you can tell it how it should live and how it should treat other people. And we don't have the authority to take that away, something that God created. We don't have the authority to snuff that out. We don't have the authority to change that. As we continue in this series, we're going to continue to unpack more of this, but we're going we're gonna to turn to communion, and I want to see how what we've talked about in, in Genesis today connects us with this idea of sharing communion together. Because this is this part of our worldview, right? We, we, we celebrate communion together for certain reasons, for certain purposes. In fact, I want to read the rest of the scripture that Billy read this morning because it talks about God creating us, God forming us, God forming our inward parts and knitting us together in my mother's womb. I love that. At the very end of that chapter, there's a couple verses that we read a lot of times when we do communion. And I love that it's connected with that same process and thought of God creating us. It says this in verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there would be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, one of the things we do at communion is we have some time of introspection and God inspection. And these verses are us inviting God to look. Not that he can't already see or doesn't already know, but we're acknowledging it. <laughs> God, look. Is there anything wrong in my life? Is there, is there anything, and specifically today we're talking about worldview. So you might even ask, God, is there anything in my worldview? The funny thing about worldview is that although all of us in this room probably share some key elements of worldview, not a single one of us in this room has the same worldview. That's strange, isn't it? Because it seems to me like if we're going to accept the worldview of Scripture, then we would all have the same worldview. But we don't. So that means when we read 23 and 24 and we ask the Lord to look in us and see if there's anything out of line, anything that's crooked that needs to be straightened, that worldview is one of those things that we can ask Him to look at. Lord, bring to my mind, to my eyes, to, to my face, Things in me that are out of line with your worldview. Where am I thinking wrong? Where am I acting wrong? Where am I speaking wrong? Where am I living wrong that, that needs to be tweaked and changed? I need to be redirected. Because Christ came to do a great work for us. To bring us back to the Father. We're going to read and we continue through Genesis. We're going to see the fall and the curse and the separation and and all of those things are going to play out. What was perfect and created order was, was just amazing and good and very good becomes broken. And God sent his son to, to fix it, to put it back right again. But our worldviews are still out of line. 
even as he is changing us, even as he is working out our salvation in us, as we grow closer to him day by day, as we study scripture, as we worship together, as we do small groups together, we do life together, we minister and we do mission together and we do these things, the Lord is tweaking and changing and adjusting. And so when we come to communion today, we ask the Lord, what is it you need to tweak and change and adjust in me? Maybe, he, maybe some of us need more than a tweak. <laughs> maybe some of us need a kick. A kick right in the behind. Maybe some of us need to turn around. Because we're facing the wrong direction completely. God's like, you're walking that way, so the rest of us are going this way. You need to turn around. Communion reminds us that Christ came to save us, to redirect us towards the Father. To, to wash away the sin that we couldn't take care of. To change our hearts and our minds and our attitudes. To transform us. To, to I love Romans. I'm going to read Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is Paul. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. This is an opportunity in the act of communion for us to present to the Father our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world. He's talking about worldview here. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do we translate this world? How do we, how do we leave it behind and, and fill ourselves and be transformed? It's this book. It's one of the reasons I'm like pushing us to read this year. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We fill our mind and our heart and our lives with Scripture, and we allow that Scripture to permeate us. That's why I'm saying you've got Sunday and Monday with no assignment in the 5 by 5 by 5 Somebody told me it takes longer than 5 by 5 by 5 That's okay. If you're a slow reader or there's a lot of tweaking that has to be done along the way, that's great. Maybe it's a 10 by 10 by 10 It doesn't matter. Take Sunday and Monday, read Genesis 1 and 2 again, pick up on Mark 6 on Tuesday, and we'll keep going. But allow the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ through the Word of God to permeate your life, to adjust the thoughts and the attitudes of your heart, to make you an acceptable, holy, living sacrifice for Him. And allow those things to trans transform you, to change you, to redirect you so that you can kick out those parts of your worldview that you realize are not biblical and replace them with ways of living and talking and attitudes, ways of serving and loving that are reflected in God's will. I'm going to grab my book here, and as we continue to think about this, I want to read a couple of things. It says that on the night our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed. It says he had a meal together with his 12. And he had sent them on ahead to prepare this meal, and they prepared it in a room. And that night at the meal, he did two things. 
that at the time were kind of curious. One of them was he took bread in the course of the meal and he broke it and he said, guys, this breaking of this bread that we're going to eat in a minute kind of reflects what's going to happen to me later, the breaking of my body. And then he poured wine and he shared the bread and he shared the wine with him and he said, this bread and this wine reflect something that's going to happen to me. The bread reflects my body. The wine reflects my blood. My blood. They're, they're symbolic ways that we're going to share this meal together right now that are going to remind you of something later. Remember, Peter was like, no, no, no. <laughs> that can't happen to you. But it was going to happen, and it had to happen. And in fact, Scripture says happened at the perfect time. And so they shared these two things together, and it says after they shared them together, they went out into the night, and they were singing, and they were praising God. And so we're going to share this meal in a moment. Uh, the way we're going to do this, we're not going to dismiss by lines or have any ushers. It's going to be organic when you feel ready to come. You may come. The, the worship team's going to sing uh, and, and do some songs. Take some time before, during, after to meditate, to speak with the Father. Remember one of our points? God is a talking God. He wants to talk to you. He wants you to talk to him. He wants to have conversations with us. We call that prayer. Take some time before the Father to talk to him, to pray, to seek his face, to hear him tell you what you need to work on in your life as he looks at you and you've asked him to search you and he says, this is an area that you need to work on. This is an area you're thinking incorrectly or acting improperly. Allow him to do that in you. And then come forward at, your, uh, at the time you choose. You come by yourself. Come with your family. Take your elements. You can take them at the table if you want to. You can take them back to your seats and take them. We're going to leave the cups at the seats. They'll be collected at a later time. Um, worship team's going to sing a couple songs. I just invite you through those songs as you take communion to go back to your seats. Again, spend some time in prayer and meditation and talking before the Father, listening to him and his spirit speak to you. And then at the end, when the songs are done, we're going to close in prayer. And at that point, we'll be dismissed. Um, but hang out for a little bit. Meet somebody you haven't met before. Have a moment to talk. Uh, share maybe uh, names, addresses, phone numbers over coffee. Get to know somebody. As we do this, as we share this together, this is one of the things that ties us together as a Christian family. And so if you're from this church and... You know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're welcome. If you're not from this church and you're visiting and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're welcome. The scripture says be very careful when you take communion. Make sure you have some things hammered down first. First, you need to know me. So if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, you're welcome at the table. If you have something scripture says that is wrong between you and a brother and sister or sister, it says go and leave the altar temporarily go take care of those things make your relationships right and then return to the altar you can do that today if the person is here that you have something wrong with you can just walk over to them and talk to them right here in the room and say hey there's something wrong between us ask for forgiveness forgive one another and then share communion we lived in Poland, I told you guys many times, but we lived there for eight years. One of the things they did in communion is everybody who was going to take communion stood, everybody who wasn't sat, and so it was obvious who was and wasn't going to take communion. And I was always shocked 
but also pleased by the number of people who decided not to take communion because they needed to work on something or pray about something or talk to somebody first. And I always wondered in the United States, do we just take communion because we're worried other people are watching? So don't be worried if other people are watching. Don't take communion today because other people are watching. Remember what we read in Genesis. There's only one that matters. The uncreated creator is watching. Please him. Honor him. Don't worry about what everybody else thinks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we share this meal together, this communion, I pray, Lord, that we'll be reminded of your son and what he did for us. Lord, that we will celebrate it together and remember together that not only did your son come for us, but that he's coming again. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to share this meal together. Lord, we thank you for being a God who speaks, a God who creates, a God who loves, and a God who sought us out when we were lost and separated. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name and in his memory that we share this meal. Amen.